Welcome. My name is Chris Williams. I'm your host of today's uh, episode of Under the Surface, a podcast where we discuss computational chemistry. Um, my host, Dave Thompson, who's with me here today. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. And our guest today is Dan McKay, who's had a long, illustrious career in computational chemistry, which he'll talk to us about. So stay tuned. We're going to get into some interesting stuff talking with Dan. Welcome. You're listening to Under the Surface, a podcast where we have in-depth discussions on computer-aided techniques in drug discovery. Thank you, for Chris, for pointing out just how old I am. Well, and I didn't say your age, I said you're experienced. Yeah, exactly. That's the uh, LinkedIn synonym for old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so actually, you know, to put that in context, give us a little bit of your history, Dan. How'd you start in this? Where'd you come from? Well, be- what? Before, I, before I get you to do that, I wanted to point out the thing I pointed out to you on the phone yesterday is that we have in common the fact that we all started out in quantum mechanics, as we just learned. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you mind, before you get into the career stuff, describing sure. how you went from like basic theory to more applied things? Like, was- Sure. So I've wanted to be a chemist since I was five. And my parents would not get me a chemistry set because they were terrified I'd blow stuff up. They get me an electronics kit, and that's why I did that. I went through my paleontology phase and all that, got into high school, and was reintroduced to chemistry through an excellent teacher, Mr. Krebs, and uh, got to university and went, yep, I'm going to be a chemist. It was in my first year of university where I first saw theoretical chemistry and Vesper theory yeah, yeah. and and orbitals and, and the quantum mechanics side of things and the spectroscopy and the UV catastrophe. And I was like, why would anyone do anything else? <laughs> because this is fundamental. Yeah. This is everything. Every, mm-hmm. if, if I know this, I can do anything else, right? This is reading the mind of God. Right? <laughs> and so then everything I did was on physical chemistry and quantum chemistry. And the interesting thing was at the time, my parents were like, well, what can you do with this? And I went, well, I can teach. Just, you can't do this for a job because back in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. there wasn't a job. Yeah. And uh, so I, my parents were like, okay, you're just going to be a student. And I went through and I went to grad school and then and I did my thesis on polymeric nitrogen and oxygen chains, and which is completely theoretical. Yeah. Um, the only examples that exist are um, uh, trioxide. Um, and the higher oxides don't exist because they they just decompose. Um, and the higher nitrogens, the triazines, tetrazines, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, they don't exist because they decompose. Yeah. Um, some of them have actually been made if you substitute off the hydrogens, but that's another story. So that was all my theory work. And uh, then it was like, wow, do I continue on in this academic side? But is there anything in industry? And then I got a phone call from Dr. Mark LaBelle from Merck Frost and wanted me to come down for an interview. And I was like, okay, who are Wait, you? Do you mind uh, Do you mind if I ask when this was? This was in uh, 96. So pre-LinkedIn, pre-social networks. Yeah, pre, like, so how, how do you think this person found you? So the external examiner for my thesis committee had a draft of my thesis mm-hmm. and he was working with Chris Bailey. Mm-hmm. And he went, hey, I got this really interesting thesis. You might want to read it. So Chris Bailey read my draft thesis and then talked to the people at Merck and said, we should probably hire this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I went down, they had already read my thesis. They knew everyone who I'd been working with. They knew everything I was doing and I didn't know who they were. <laughs> so it was a very one-sided interview and it was, uh, they knew way too much about me and what I was doing. And they knew all of my papers that I had published to that point, which were very esoteric academic things and 20 um, and locally dense basis sets mm-hmm. and um, really high end QM systems and, and optimizing basis sets and that kind of stuff. And, and looking at decomposition pathways of theoretical molecules. And like this is nothing to do with drug discovery. The only thing I had done even remotely similar to drug discovery was I took a course with Keith Ingold hmm. who was, he had a chair at uh, Queens. He had a chair at U of T he had a chair at, at, uh, at Carleton. And he had a course on a graduate course on biochemistry. And so I, I audited the course and I remember the very first day he went around and he went, okay, you're working with this person. Okay. And you're working with this person. He came to me and said, you're working with Jim Wright. Why are you in this class? Mm-hmm. And I went, cause I know nothing about it. And he smiled and he went, that's the best reason to be in a class. Yeah. And I kind of became teacher's pet 
at that point in grad school, mm-hmm. as weird as that sounds. Anyways, he, he got into some experimental work that he had done at U of T on um, alpha tocopherol radical scavengers doing ischemic reperfusion damage. And so they were actually doing surgeries on cardiac tissue and and infusing it with radical scavengers. So vitamin E, alpha tocopherol, and then showing that when they reperfuse the area, the damage is mitigated. And so maybe this could be used in in cardiac surgery or maybe it could be used for stroke and Mm -hmm. stuff. And so I asked, like, has anyone calculated the bond association energies of alpha tocopherol? And maybe you can make analogs that would be better. And he went, what do you mean? I was like, oh, this is simple, right? This is just basic apply quantum, right? I can do this on a computer. And so my first paper on that was with Keith Engel, where I calculated the bond association energies of alpha tocopherol and analogs. And then we designed different analogs. And my the lab that I was with actually went on and did a series of papers with him. I had graduated at that point. Hmm. So I went down to Merck. I was like, what the hell am I going to present? So I presented the stuff on vitamin E. And they thought it was pretty good. <laughs> nice. So that's- was that an unusual hiring strategy for them, or were they always just looking out for smart people doing interesting things? So in this particular case, they actually needed someone who could do quantum mechanics mm. for a patent problem that they had. And so this goes back into the days of Viox. And uh, there was another company that had patented a related molecule. They had actually patented the tautomer of Viox for a completely different thing. And then they said, no, 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 your your drug is actually covered by our patent. And what we had to show was that the uh, enol form of, uh, of, of Viox and Arcoxia, which is a drug that's available in, the, in Europe, um, the, enol, the keto form, the enol form, sorry, which is in their patent, never exists. How do you prove a molecule doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't do it experimentally. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down and devised a way where we could do it quantum mechanically, where I could look at ketoenol equilibrium for a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. systems, and I could interpolate that, and I could show that they're so far off the scale right. that if you had the entire solar system made out of Viox, you wouldn't have a single molecule mm-hmm. of the keto form nice. or the enol form. Yeah. And so I was able to show that. And so that went into court and we won. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually really interesting because the 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 judge in the case decided that um, their case was so flawed that they actually had to pay our expenses. Oh, Wow. And so it was It was bizarre because this is the very first thing I did when I was in industry. And so Chris, Chris Bailey took me aside and said, okay, this is what you're going to be doing. And because it's with the lawyers, you can't talk to anyone about it. I'm like, yeah, but I just started here and I'm already weird because I'm a theoretical chemist <laughs> surrounded by experimentalists. And now I have to tell people I can't tell you what I'm doing. <laughs> it got worse than that because I had to call the supercomputer center that we had in Rahway, New Jersey mm-hmm. and said, hi, I'm the new guy. Your three Cray computers, I have them for the next month. No one can use them. And of course they went, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> And then the lawyers called them and 10 minutes later, the uh, Rich yeah. Bach, who was head of the, the group there, went, yep, okay, they're all yours. And, and I was despised the moment I walked in there. The, the, I couldn't talk to the medicinal chemists. I couldn't talk to the biologists. I couldn't talk to the comp side people. Mm. I just came in and kind of went, mine. <laughs> wow. And then spent the first 30 days just doing these QM calculations to show this ketoenal equilibrium problem. Um, and then it went to court and we were fine. But then we had to go back and I had to enumerate the number of hours on the three Cray supercomputers that I had spent to do these calculations because the other company had to pay for that. Oh. oh. And that Wow, when up, you lose, you really lose. You lose. That, that ended up being a huge amount of money because time on a Cray back then yeah. was massive. And mm. we had three of them tied up 24 hours a day for oh. 30 days. Oh, my God. So you yeah. paid for the next generation of HPCs probably. Pretty much. Yeah. It, it, it Nicely was a, done. Yeah, it was a very, very large <laughs> number. Um, and so that was my introduction to industrial chemistry. Wow, that's a cool yeah. story, man. Yeah. And then after that, Chris was like, all this QM stuff that you're doing, that's great. Have you thought about doing proteins and force fields? And I went, oh, my God, force fields? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to corrupt my QM mind with force fields? Well, yeah, they, for, coming from QM, you know, molecular mechanics, that's not what molecules are. Molecules aren't balls and string. Right. It, it, it's such an approximation. Yep. But when when you start, when you, 
you dive into it and Chris is just brilliant. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and when you actually get into it and dive into that area and you can see just how powerful it actually is. Mm -hmm. And again, you're, you're dealing with relatively large systems. And so the QM classical kind of convergence really comes into play and you're dealing with statistically average positions and populations. So it's not as horrible as it seems. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's how I started and just never look back. Exactly. Yeah. So and you so you were at Merck and then you went to when when Merck Frost closed, I went to Novartis. And you were there for like ten years. Ten years. And now recently you're at Ventus Therapeutics here back in Montreal. So I've And been, Novartis was here or in the US? It was in Boston. Boston, okay. Yeah. So I was uh, 14, 15 years at Merck Frost mm. and then ten years down in Boston at Novartis. And I've been three years back here with Ventus Therapeutics. Um, where I, I get to be the head of the CAD group and uh, apply really good theory to really good drug problems. The other thing is that I get to work with a whole bunch of people I knew from the Merck Fox days. And so I'm working with some of the best biologists and best chemists in, in the industry. So it's almost like mm -hmm. a homecoming. Nice. So when, when I was invited back, it was like, oh yeah, I'm there. And you're one of the co-founders now of Ventus, right? Yeah, so the the technology that we developed to look at time average water structures and be able to extract properties that are otherwise invisible, um, that's become a key key uh, cornerstone of our platform. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a co-founder of the company at nice. this point. And who are the other founders, if you don't mind me asking? So, um, uh, Hao Wu um, from Boston University. Um, she's uh, from Boston. Are she at Boston or Harvard? I forget which now. How is at Harvard? She's a structural biologist, mm -hmm. and she was working on the inflammasome and, and looking at um, cryo-EM structures. Mm -hmm. And one of her postdocs, uh, Lee Wang, um, actually solved the NLRP3 um, structure using cryo-EM. Mm -hmm. And so they started a company um, which was called Smock at the time, and the early form of Ventus actually bought it. And so they merged okay. at that point. And so we had the, the chemistry and biology with um, Jason Birch and, and Mike Krakauer and uh, um, Anik. And, and um, they, they formed the nucleus of, of the company um, and then merged in with Smock. And so they had a full-fledged pharma company. Yeah, yeah. What they were missing was CAD. So we've had some some conversations recently with people we're going to talk to and people we talked to in the past about this sort of emerging trend in in the, in the space of you have sort of traditional pharmaceutical companies uh, where the computational piece is a growth that has grown with time, and then you have these newer companies where it's maybe the technology stack first, and yeah. then the realization that actually we have to make this stuff too. And where do you guys see yourself? Maybe in the former. Yeah, so we're we're definitely a full fledged pharma company. Yeah. Where chemistry, biology, all of that, and structural biology, that is our bread and butter, yeah. right? And the computation stuff definitely came in afterwards. It's been very influential and, and been it's been extremely helpful. Um, but if you do not have good medicinal chemistry, if you don't have the people who will hold your feet to the fire. Computationally, you can do anything you want. It doesn't mean any of it's any good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And so when when I come up with something, the, the platform that we came up with, Resolve, um, the very first thing the chemist did was like, well, does it work? Test it, prove it. And so we did some some tests. We, we took some targets and we got the uh, uh, water structures out of it and we did some virtual screens and we ordered compounds and it worked. And they went, cool. What else can you do? Yeah, yeah. And it, but if you don't have that, if you've got a purely theoretical company, hmm. you can make all kinds of graphs and all kinds of charts and say, I've got correlation coefficients of 0.9. Aren't I wonderful? Where's the drug? Where, where, where's the actual thing that you're going to actually change people's Tell lives? Tell it to the FDA, them? tech bro. Right. If you, don't, if you don't have the people who are going to put it into the lab yeah. and actually do something with it, stop wasting everyone's time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, theory, you can sit down and do whatever you want. It's not until the chemists actually do something with it. And then really, it's not until the biologists and the DMPK people mm -hmm. get it and say, yeah, it's actually doing something. And it's safe. That even, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, but um, 
all of that comes later. But if, yep. if you're just doing theoretical work, forget it. Yeah, it's yeah. a waste of time. So, and we're never going to do that. Mm-hmm. We are never going to be a platform first company because we don't want to waste anyone's time or money. It's a good way of describing that's it in the way, future, yeah. right? Like yeah. platform platform first. Well, I mean, that that's a lot of companies do present the platform. There's this new you know, either algorithm or docking approach or something. And then they, the, sure. the technology comes before the actual drug discovery. Um, but we've seen these companies come and go over time, yeah. right? And I think maybe this what this is really pointing to is unlike, say, buildings and airplanes where it can design these things completely on computers, for the most part, drugs were definitely not there. Yeah, but, but even even when you're designing airplanes and stuff on purely on computer, you still prototype them and you still build them and you still put them in wind tunnels and you still test them. Mm-hmm. Because what you can do on a computer and what happens in reality are never the same thing. There's always going to be something. Our simulations, our understanding of the physical world is incomplete. Mm-hmm. All of our theories are incomplete. And in molecular modeling, we're doing classical mechanics on quantum systems. Of course, we're incomplete. Yeah. Right? And there's no way that we're going to be able to solve the Schrodinger equation for a protein anytime soon. Right? Yeah. So, and even if we could. It would have to be full configuration interaction exactly with all the solvent and we, yeah. we need full ci calculation on the cell basically yeah and and the, but for every configuration yes right and so you would have to do this over time forget it we're not we're nowhere even close to that so th- if you don't take your theory and apply it in the real world and test it in the real world it doesn't matter you can make yeah. all the graphs, you can make all the plots, you can make all the presentations, you can say whatever you want. And until you can actually put it in practice, you're wasting everyone's time. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's, I think that's really a good point. It's, it's good to actually emphasize that because computational, over the decades we've been doing it, there's always some new great thing that's going to replace sure. experiment or you know, a new paradigm that we haven't thought of. And all of a sudden drugs are going to come out and they typically never do. And that actually brings us to one of the things we want to talk about today was uh, machine learning hype and AI hype in the industry. Is it harming our industry? So the hype is. So I want to be very clear about this. We use machine learning, right? I'm not going to use the word AI because that's just a loaded term. But in terms of machine learning, we use machine learning in our work, right? We use machine learning in our Resolve platform. But you have to make sure that machine learning is used within scope, Mm -hmm. And so everyone in our society is so used to machine learning now and, and artificial intelligence in, in that respect um, and chat GPT and facial recognition and, and being able to take a photograph and saying, hey, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a house. Well, if you think about those problems, and, and we've talked about this before, if you go onto social media and just go through how many archived annotated photos there are. Yeah right now available it's in the billions it's in the tens of billions the number of people individual people on the planet is what seven billion Mm -hmm. so absolutely you can train a computer to look at a photograph and identify individual people let alone gender or or orientations of stop signs or or cars or whatever absolutely you can do this because you have a massive data and and we've spoken about Mm -hmm. this as well the form of that data is exactly what's necessary for us to recognize it. We look yeah. at a photograph, all of the information is there, and it's in a beautiful form which is ripe for computation, right? You have a four-dimensional piece of data. You have an RGB vector and an XY position, so it's a five-dimensional piece of data, and you have that for your image. Well, it's set up for computer processing, right? If you can't do machine learning on photographs, then you can't do machine learning. Yeah, it's probably right. the most ideal situation for right. machine learning. And then we also have ChatGPT. We, we have petabytes of text. And we have text that's been annotated and we have text that has been commented on. We have text that feed into text and, and everything interrelated. We have hyperlinks. We have hyperlinks on webs. So you can go through a paragraph on Wikipedia and you can find 15 blue hypertext inside of that. Well, you, if you can't take all of that petabytes of data and train a language model, you've got a problem, right? So mm-hmm. the fact that ChatGPT works shouldn't surprise anyone. If it didn't work, it would be shocking. Yeah. In a sense, I mean, we've read magazine articles. Like when you start reading a magazine, 
you know, daily living or, you know, biking today, after 15 or 16 uh, issues, you start reading the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Because that's what people do. I'm writing about, you know, mountain biking today and I'll probably copy what I said yesterday in, in slightly different words. And essentially, I think this is what these things are doing. Just take up known text, chop it up, put it back in a, a regurgitate it. And that's because we have plenty of data. And, well, you, and good you quality you literally petabytes of text. So yeah. Yeah. if someone can say, oh, I've never seen this before. Yeah. Well, you haven't read every book in the Library of Congress. ChatGPT has. Mm hmm. Right. Everything that's ever been written basically before the, the, the initial date of it is there. And so if it can't bring up stuff, then you're, you're hopelessly lost. Where the problem comes in is when the problem size is much, much bigger than the data pool. So when we get into small molecules and drug discovery, depending on how you do the math, the small drug, small molecule drug space is somewhere between 10 to the 60, 10 to the 64th power of molecules that are potential drugs. If you look at all of the databases that currently exist, either virtual or real, if you amalgamated them all together, you might get 10 to the 12. So 10 to the 12, yeah, 10, to the 10 to the 60, right? So okay, in percentages... It, it doesn't even rate. Mm -hmm. like, well, and that's just an enumeration of the possible molecules, right? As opposed to their possible interactions with anything. Yeah. Just enumerate. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then if you actually, of, of the molecules that we have in collections and libraries and virtual spaces, which is 10 to the 12, 10 to the 13, the number of molecules that we have actual data on, mm. 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8, yeah, yeah. maybe. Maybe, yeah. And then of the ones... Out of that, how many do we have good data on? 10 to the 6, right? Yeah. So like, this, is, um, this is where I look to Joanna and I say, so you're telling me there's a chance? Uh, yeah. Uh, and so it, it, the other thing that, that is fundamentally irritating is one of the numbers that everyone uses is the KD, right? The binding coefficient. Mm -hmm. Everyone forgets that KD is a one-dimensional representation of two-dimensional data. Hmm. You can have 100 molecules that have exactly the same KD, and they behave completely differently in vivo because they have different K on and K off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we've seen it. We've seen it experimentally. Mm -hmm. When in all the pharma that I've worked at, you will have compounds that have very similar KD, and they behave very differently when you put them into biological systems. And you're like, why? Why is that so different, right? If you look, like uh, uh, Novartis has a drug in matinib and nilotinib, right? Mm -hmm. All of their interactions, they have crystal structures of these things. These compounds have been studied to death, right? These are huge money makers for the, the company and for good reason mm -hmm. because they treat cancers that just yeah. would destroy lives. I mean, credit where credit is due. If you look at why those drugs are different, why one is better than the other, because nilotinib came later and it's, it's a significantly better drug, um, the KD really isn't that different. But the K-off hmm. is, is 100 times slower. Yeah, so it takes 100 times longer to come out of there. Yeah. Well, the K-on is, is uh, 10 times worse. And so the ratio ends up being only a factor of 10 but the occupancy is much, much greater because mm -hmm. the K-off is so much slower. It's a hundredfold slower. Mm -hmm. And so the effect in cell is totally different. KDs yeah. are basically the same. Mm -hmm. And so here we are, the very best machine learning models that people are building for drugs. And they're like, oh, I'm going to train it on, on this binding data. Terrific. You're, you're missing half the story. Like, yeah, yeah. If you do that perfectly, you're still not going to be able to predict a good drug. Yeah. And no one's doing that perfectly. Yeah. I mean, it's the same, similar with, say, agonist versus antagonist action. I've got a binding energy, but how do I affect the conformation of the receptor to induce biological effect? Yeah, and, so, yeah, and that, that comes to the idea that binding and efficacy are not necessarily related. Mm -hmm. Right. You can have a drug that binds. So what? It doesn't do anything. And so um, actually one of my former colleagues uh, did a, a bunch of work with HERG. And you can have compounds that bind to HERG. And you can have compounds that bind very well to HERG. But as HERG cycles, because HERG goes through on and off, on and off, as through the, the um, cardiac system, um, if the compound gets ejected every time HERG closes off, it doesn't matter if it binds or not because it has to rebind next cycle. 
If, however, it binds crap, but it doesn't get ejected, well, then it can build up over time. Oh, yeah. And so you can have compounds that have really good herd binding in one particular Mm -hmm. type of assay and another compound that doesn't bind very well at all. But the second compound never leaves. And you're going to have QT prolongation and mm-hmm. you're going to have cardiac problems. And yeah. you you can have a drug that, if you're not careful, can kill people, right? Even though the binding seems small. Exactly. Right? Because yeah. you actually have to look at the kinetics of it and what's it doing mm-hmm. over time. And we lose that. Yeah, and that's, that's not in our information. It's like almost taking those... Um, know facial images and smearing them a little bit yeah. changing the colors and we're not getting a full representation yeah. of the so but you machine. you use it and we use it and most people use it in a practical way yeah. right so then i guess we just have to keep an eye on how we're using it and the kinds of problems we're using it on to make sure that we're within that you know domain applicability or or scope of utility yeah. and then i'm curious as to your thoughts on how do we so it, can we move beyond that? Like, is it just about collecting more data? And is, do, can we simulate some of these things? I mean, what's the role of, of simulated data in making these models better? So the, there's a fair amount of work going on in the area of um, the simulated kinetics. Mm-hmm. So taking biological processes and basically replacing them with differential equations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you can approximate the uh, the coefficients of your differential equations for efflux, for metabolism, for clearance, mm-hmm. for um, absorption, for protein shift, for, for uh, plasma protein binding, for bi- albumin binding, that kind of stuff. If you can get all of those constants, then you could, using differential equations, mm-hmm. model what would happen in a biological system. System. But that means you have to have the K-ons and K-offs. You yeah. have to have that kind of data. And so coming back to the KDs or the IC50s or the EC50s or however you want to measure it, whether they're receptors or, or um, um, transmembrane proteins or whatever, um, when, when you are going through all of this, it's necessary to have a good KD. It's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so you can do all the theory that you want to get a good KD. We do not have enough tools right now in our computational toolkit to find out if that KD, given everything else, is actually going to work. And if you don't have the experimental side to back it up, you're never going to know. Yeah. right? We don't have the fundamental underpinnings yet to get into the kinetics. Mm-hmm. We're working on it and mm-hmm. everyone's working on it. Yeah. Um, and that's going to help. Even that's not going to be enough because then you have efflux and you have metabolism. You have all these other compartments mm-hmm. and each drug is going to be different. We, we were talking about this with some of my colleagues um, this week. And it's interesting because drug discovery and machine learning are fundamentally at odds. And let me explain what I mean. Machine learning takes a whole bunch of information and learns generalities and it learns how to respond to things and it learns the average and it learns the bias and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Drug discovery, by its very nature, you're looking for the exception, right? And so when when I was first started into at Merck Frost and I was fresh out of grad school and I was like, oh my God, I don't belong here, right? Because... Everyone around me is a genius and I'm an idiot, right? Um, I think everyone in my field suffers from imposter oh, syndrome. Yeah, 100%. And so it was explained to me that finding a drug, so I was like, oh, I'm going to do all this work yeah. and I'm going to get something that binds really well. And I remember a biologist sat me down and went, finding a drug or a compound that binds really well, really not that hard. <laughs> finding a drug that binds really well and is not metabolized and does not hit an off target and does not do this and does not do that. And what she was describing to me was threading a needle, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's it's not good enough to find the average. That That's easy. Mm-hmm. You have to thread the needle. You have to find the exception. Machine learning is yeah. not about finding exceptions. It's about finding the norms. Mm-hmm. It's about finding what the bulk behavior is. Yeah. It's really good at that. And then even once you've thread the needle, right? Like we had a presentation at the UGM in June where someone thread the needle and then the program was closed down for, and I think he used the phrase strategic reasons, yes, right? Yes. So I always, I had the opportunity to move away from the field for a while and work in sort of the business side of the pharmaceutical space. And, and I just, 
I just realized how small the research side of it actually was yeah. when you when you start thinking about the clinical side and you start thinking about mm-hmm. the marketing and all the different, especially in the US, right? It's uh, well wor- worldwide the the clinical side. Um, is where the bulk of money gets exactly, spent, yeah, right, yeah, and 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 rightly so. Uh-huh. I, I don't get me wrong; I'm not knocking anyone on this. The clinical side is where the rubber hits the road, exactly, right. This is where you are directly affecting people's lives, and you do not cut corners, exactly, right. That's exactly you right. do not skip on anything. You you don't do anything for cost cutting measures. Your everything there is about safety and making sure that this is actually going to help people. Yeah. The reason we do what we do, and and. The companies are companies and, and companies exist to make money. The reason scientists do what we do, because we want to affect people's lives, right? Everyone I work with, we always have that in mind. Mm-hmm. We actually don't consider the money part of it. We have business people to do that. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the clinical stuff, there's no cost cutting mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. majority of money gets spent there. Basic, basic research, the stuff that I do early on is the cheapest part of drug discovery, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. right? For, for, for a computer-aided drug discovery, you pay for a bunch of computers and you pay for a bunch of geeks to just go to town. And, yeah. and high-quality software are platforms cheap. as well. Yeah. Right. right. Of course, no, the high-quality high software platform as well. Yeah, yeah the, well, that's, that's typically not so cheap. Okay. <laughs> relatively speaking. Relatively. Yeah, relatively speaking. Compa- right? Compared to what you pay for reagents and experiments, software is cheap. Yeah. Right. Right. The the average bench chemist, the average bench biologist is going to go through a lot more money than the average cat person, including mm-hmm. the software and everything else. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we can do a lot of stuff. But without the bench chemist, yeah, yeah. without the biologist, no point in us doing anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. OK. And so um, where the money gets spent is is appropriate as far as I'm concerned. Um so coming back to the business model, then there's so much money in the pharmaceutical field as far as the outside world is concerned. The drugs cost so much. The process costs so much. The estimates that I've been seeing to bring a drug to market is roughly a billion dollars, mm-hmm. between 500 million and a billion dollars. Yeah. What people forget is one in five projects goes to market. The other four still cost a billion dollars. So for every compound that comes out of a pharmaceutical company, the company's basically spent somewhere between 2.5 and $5 billion. So they have to make that money back on each drug. Well, yeah. I just, I just, your comment made me think of something that came up during a discussion I was having with some folks at some other forum and, um, there wasn't the economy, right? I, I love the economist. I've been, reading economics for years because it's a sensible magazine and I like sensible magazines. Um, they had a whole piece on, 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 on the future of the firm as, as, as firms wrestle with artificial intelligence in the same way that our community is doing that. And they said that most firms are really, if you're going to take this data first approach, right, the data itself is going to have a value that you're going to have to think about how you use. And if you think about what you said, right, I, my one drug out of the five programs I run make it to market, the other four they're, a, they're not really a sunk cost because I learned something along the way. But in this data first approach, it, there's a whole bunch of information there that I'm perhaps not leveraging or that I could perhaps leverage with someone else, right? So what's that marketplace look like? So pharma companies are loath to give their data to anybody. But exactly, so it, that's exactly my point. Like, are we not our own worst enemies in terms of being able to create that marketplace? And what might it look like if we did? I think this gets back to one of your points, good science and good business. Is that a contradiction? Oh, yes. there you and, go. And that's exa- this actually leads right into that. Perfect. Every pharma company right now is sitting on yeah. a wealth of information that they are not giving out, right? And they're not giving it out for a number of reasons. First off, there's a, they have a, a compound that they're bringing together for a, a target and they've got a compound that's going forward. Well, they've got other series that they've decided for one reason or another to stop. They're not going to release that because other pharma companies can take that and make a Me Too drug mm-hmm. and break the patent space. So they can take that information and make a competitor compound. So no one's going to release that kind of information because from a business perspective, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. Why would you help your competitors? Mm-hmm. right? So from that perspective, all this late stage um, drug development stuff, especially on um, biological targets of, of commercial interest, no one releases that. Mm-hmm. 
you just you just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you did, your board of directors would would have you up in arms because you're undermining your own company. Mm-hmm. I have to believe there's a smart way of doing this, though. Right? There has to be. There has to be a marketplace for this. So there, there have been a, a couple of consortiums that have been put together where they've blinded data, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they have produced like um, metabolism data for a bunch of compounds without letting anyone know what the targets were. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've released uh, stability data. They've released solubility data. Um, even then, it's problematic because company A, company B, and company C they can run their solubility assays in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's not comparable. And, and it's yeah. very often mixed quality. Yeah, yeah. Um, some people might be extremely careful and other people not so much. I've seen it inside of a given company where depending on who's running the assay, you the project would take the, the, the results differently. Yeah. And so you get a set of compounds that get tested and you would ask, oh, who ran this assay? Oh, well, I'll listen to that one. Oh, that person, I'll wait until the end of two. And the thing is, people in the company know about that. When, when I'm taking a number not. out of a paper, yeah, yeah. I don't, don't know the quality of that result. Yeah. Right. Um, so there is a ton of data. Yeah. It's extremely noisy data. It's yeah. extremely dirty data. Um, some of it's great. Some yeah. of it isn't. It's all mixed together. Yeah. And there's, there is a, a business reason for not releasing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a business reason for releasing it with obfuscation. There's a whole mm-hmm. field in, in management literature where this is called st- the, the strategic reveal, right? Companies will think very deeply about what is disclosed yeah. in lots of different forums uh, with respect to lots of different ways in which it could be used for or against them. So, so I have actually heard of companies and... and um, I, I, I'm going to couch this in that I've never been part of this. I've never seen this firsthand, but I have heard of this from at conferences and mm-hmm. stuff where people have released data on a target of interest that looks really promising simply so that other pharma companies will take that, use it, invest a year into it before finding out that it's a blind alley. Oh, I like that. That sounds nice and sneaky. I have I have heard of this. But that's not necessarily good science. That's good business. It's very good business and and everyone gets to learn the same lesson. <laughs> this doesn't work. Um and that's happened. Yeah. Okay. Um and so that's the other problem with, with a lot of this data is how much of it do you actually release? Yeah, right? yeah. And so we've also seen, um, there was a, a case that I've seen quite recently where there were two groups that were presenting on the same thing and one presented a, a set of data and they had a really nice correlation plot. And then another group presented data on the same thing, but a lot more data and it was a shotgun blast. <laughs> but the correlated plot was a subset. Oh, that's... Uh... I mean, we, we see that when we started in the field, we see that QSAR models, you know, and you take out the outliers and the model gets better. And then you look at some of the data points and some of the data points that were off is because they had bad experimental measurements. And then we say, well, the data points that were on your QSAR line, did you go check their experiments and update them too? So, yeah, you, you, a lot of people can justify removing data that doesn't look good. Oh, that, that person had a bad day that day, or um, I think the dilutions were wrong or whatever. Um, the cell culture sat out too long, and mm-hmm. so I don't think it's real. Um, sure, but what about the data that you're keeping? Oh, no, that was fine, obviously. <laughs> no. <laughs> Right. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen a, a selective pruning of data. Um, and that's just unethical as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be fair, very few people actually do that. Um, unfortunately, the few that do do that tend to get published because, hey, it's new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and this is it's we, we move into an area of publications and how good are scientific publications. Uh, and that's actually maybe brings the next thing we want to talk about is, you know, doing very large scale calculations just for the sake of doing large scale calculations. And I think that kind of relates to the problems with docking and scoring. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, y- you can get a if you do something for the first time that no one's ever done before and you do x 
where where X is an order of magnitude bigger than someone else has done, it's going to get published, right? It's it's unavoidable. It will be regardless of the quality. I I dock a million compounds versus ten million. The fact that ten million is big will yeah. get me the publication. And and regardless of whether or not anyone can use it, because mm-hmm. the, the being able to do it is news, right? If you've got a tool that can screen ten billion molecules in an hour, that's news, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't today. I don't think anyone has that tool. I don't think we have the computers that could possibly process that. Mm-hmm. And if you could do that, terrific. Now, if the score is crappy, well, that's a separate question, right? With two different things. Hey, you can do it. Then can you do it well? <laughs> and so this stuff gets published. And so there's a lot of work that goes on that is about what you can do, not about actually doing something. Okay, I see what you mean. It's like, well, in a sense, this paper is showing I can run this big, huge document result and get some results. And it, but it, maybe it doesn't have the follow-up synthesis testing, seeing if it's actually sure. efficacious. But, but does that? I mean, does that does that matter to some extent? Like, if I'm if well, I'm rigorously describing the experiment I ran, and and the focus of my hypothesis is the ability to do it and pay perhaps some ancillary observations that I can test or not for the yeah. presence or absence of. That's reasonable science. It I is. Mean, it's absolutely reasonable science. Yeah. And and to show that something is doable. Do, yeah. In terms of drug discovery and, and changing human health. Right. It's pointless. Right. Well, perhaps pointless now, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. You you then have to say, okay, I have this capability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now can I do something useful with it? Right. Mm. And that follow-up work tends to be much slower. Yeah. And so it's easy to get on the hype cycle and go, this is what we can do. This is what we can do. This is what mm-hmm. we can do. But in order to prove that you can do it, you've got to have the chemistry and the biology yeah. and everything else to back it up. Some, some yeah. of these experiments that get run, that get run and that get published and that have the high profile. For a while, I was a little worried that they were only coming from those groups that did have those resources to do the bit. Like I have the shiny thing. I can do the shiny thing. I tell you about the shiny thing. But then what's interesting about what you just described is this is the same with those those large language models, for instance. Like no one has the capabilities to, to, to run these, to like actually build the model. But where you're seeing the innovation and what people are most excited about is the groups of people running the clusters of raspberry pies who are tuning the hyperparameters yes and that they can do wicked fast and yeah. it turns out that you can actually do really well with those kinds of things yeah so yeah i, I like the way you describe that that's cool yeah that's right but maybe what's getting confused is the fact that you can do a 10, 10 million dock and run very quickly the technology is proven but maybe sometimes people make the assumption the docking is giving me good results with respect to drug discovery well, you, you don't know until you test it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you can't test it. So then you have to take, you, you have to MacGyver it, right? Like, well, they have a $10 trillion machine and I've got a stick and a rubber band. Like, I, how do I make it work? Yeah. Uh, now I've got my stick and my rubber band and now I see, oh, hang on a minute, the scoring function doesn't work. But that's okay because my stick and my rubber band approach allows me to rapidly iterate and then I improve it and mm-hmm. then I do the thing yeah. that actually gets to the scoring function. So Joanna's yeah. laughing about the whole MacGyver. Do you see I brought MacGyver in there? <laughs> you like that? Yeah. Is he still alive, MacGyver? The man who played MacGyver? I, don't I know. have no idea. Do you think he'd come on the show? He might. They, they, I knew they did a reboot of MacGyver. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think I I, I looked shocked. I think there. isn't it a woman now? That's MacGyver. I don't care. Whoever we can get to come on and be MacGyver. There yeah. was the original MacGyver from like the seventies, eighties. Yeah. And yeah. then they did a reboot. I think in the two thousands with a different male actor. Okay. I don't uh. know if they did another reboot after oh, that. Okay. I remember the original one, the original MacGyver. Me too, yeah, yeah. Was that, was that 70s, 80s? Yeah, I think it was 80s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. early 80s. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> that's bad. As far as the universe is concerned, Chris, it wasn't even yesterday. It was yeah, that's true. That's I'm true. Sinking. Yeah. Well, Chris and I are the same vintage, so. Yeah. I wanted to ask about water. Please oh, do. please, and my favorite subject. Yes. <laughs> so how did you get onto the water then? So th- that was actually interesting. That that started when I was at Merck Frost mm-hmm. working with Chris Bailey. And we had a bunch of MD models and we were, we were doing some really cool stuff, right? And we did a bunch of work on HIV protease and we mm-hmm. actually designed two completely novel classes of compound um, that actually worked and, and it, was, it was really cool. Um, and it was all tested and, and, and I actually moved on into clinic. And inside of HIV protease at the flap, there's the flap water, right? Yep. It, yep. It's such a famous water. It has a name. Yep. 
And that flat body used to always piss me off. <laughs> and the, actually, the compounds that we designed actually displace it, mm-hmm. right? And early on, the, there was the the dogma that the flap water was so critical that you had to interact with it. Mm-hmm. And so all the peptidomimetics, which are HIV protease inhibitors, actually interact with that. And then the water interacts with the, the two flaps and mm-hmm. stitches the whole thing mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And we actually displaced it, and um, and so obviously that dogma was wrong, but clearly water mattered. And we worked on other projects where everything is the same as in HIV proteism, so we, we should be perfect, and the models don't correlate. Like, what the hell is going on? And what we realized was, what's missing? We've got the protein, we've got the small molecule. And it's like, well, this is all happening in aqueous solution. Yeah. And on the molecular level, water is not a continuum. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a collection of water molecules. Mm-hmm. And in binding pockets, it's it's so far away from a continuum because you're literally dealing with a handful of water molecules. Mm-hmm. It's a water cluster at that point. Right. Yeah. And it, it's it's detached from bulk. Yeah. And so we were doing, at that time, we were doing explosive solvent MD. So I started to look at that and went, wait a second. The water inside the protein and near the protein is behaving really differently than the water in bulk. Mm. And so I started to look at statistically from our simulations. And then I went down to Boston and I went down to Novartis and and I talked to Jose Duca and I said, I got this cool idea looking at water. What do you think? And he went, sure, go for it. And so he let me spend half of my time doing this development stuff. And so I developed this methodology of looking at water um, as distributions of oxygen atoms mm-hmm. and hydrogen atoms doing this molecular square dance in a time averaged way around a protein structure. So here's the thing that we skip about water. Water in, in this, I have a glass of water right here. Mm-hmm. And if you were to zoom in on that in an instant of time, like a split second in time, you will not find it to be H2O. Because it isn't. And everyone knows it isn't, mm-hmm. right? Chris, what's the pH of water? It's uh, seven. And pH means the negative log of the H ion concentration. Exactly. So you've got one, one in 10 million are going to be hydroniums, one in 10 million are going to be hydroxyls. Right. right. But if you take a hydroxyl or hydronium and put it into water, it's not staying as an individual proton or a hydroxyl. No, no, it's, it's going to bind to another water and it's going to form these uh, yeah. larger molecules. Mm. And so at 10 to the minus seven molar of H plus and OH minus, this is actually a collection of H2O. And H3O and uh, H3O2 or H5O2 and H2O3 and and all these different sort of clusters of clusters. uh, And they're constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And there's some really cool work that was done by Einstein. If you look at the Einstein diffusion equation and knowing what the pH of water is, you can actually work out what the lifetime of a water molecule is. And I did this years ago, and I, I think it's something on the order of, uh, of 14 nanoseconds that a water molecule stays as a particular H2O. oxygen with two hydrogens because the hydrogens are constantly exchanging. So if you're starting to look at water on timescales of nanoseconds to microseconds to milliseconds, what you're really talking about is a bunch of oxygen atoms and a bunch of hydrogen atoms, and they're all doing a square dance. Yeah. And at any snapshot in time, each oxygen is probably going to have two hydrogen neighbors. It might have three or it might have one, but most of them are going to have two. But those two are changing. And mm-hmm. once you start thinking about water that way and then think about time average structure. So I do my MD, and I, but I analyze it as if it's doing this square dance. Water structure starts to pour out of this in a time average mm-hmm. sense. And then suddenly you get to see all this stuff that you've never seen before. And all of the all the MD that we were doing and looking at average structures and and dyna- mm-hmm. when you see all this water come in, it's like oh man, it it's like you're you were missing half the story mm-hmm. before. It yeah. sounds very rhythmy. It isn't. It isn't. Three D rhythm, which is a brilliant methodology, and uh, Kovalenko did some really cool work on this, and and Jean Francois Touchon did some really good cool work on this. There, you're solving for the water structure in infinite time. Yes. In a static protein. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
what we're doing is everything's moving. Uh, we're solving yeah. the water structure in in an, a time average sense. Every it, we nothing's restrained. If you restrain anything, you are going to introduce artifacts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if yeah. you solve water structure with a frozen protein, for example, your water structure is a fiction because you're solving water at 300 Kelvin in the presence of a protein at zero Kelvin. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're going to end up with weird artifacts that have mm. nothing to do with anything. Yeah. So everything has to be moving. So 3D RISM, which is great, and I've talked to Kovalenko about this, if you could do 3D RISM on an infinite number of configurations of the protein, mm -hmm. the two methodologies would converge. I have to, so I have this weird relationship with RISM in the sense that I, my, my least cited publication, I think, is, is on the Ornstein-Zernig closure relationship. Okay. <laughs> which is the foundation yep. of the of 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 rhythm and of but i came at it from a dft perspective right well rhythm is dft yeah exactly yeah. exactly right so yeah. i understand if I, I i'm doing the air quotes here i understand it quotation end quotation yeah. <laughs> uh in the sense that i i kind of understand it from there but then i'm trying to think about what you just said in the dft like what would that i have to think about that what would that mean so again you're still solving the water as if it's in infinite time. Yeah. Because you have all the fluid dynamics calculations that you're, you're solving. The protein is still frozen. Yeah, yeah. So you solve that. Yeah. Then you change the protein and you resolve. Resolve, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and then average. And then move the protein and then resolve. Yeah. And if you do that an infinite number of times so yeah. that you're actually sampling all the protein, yeah, yeah. the results that you get from that and the results that I get will converge. Will converge, okay. Yeah. Mm. Right. I still don't. "Quote unquote," understand, but I'm going to think about it. That's exactly well, I think why that's, I like there's, these there's a difference between what you're doing and what a lot of traditional water analysis was. Was traditional water analysis had the protein rigid because mm. of time constraints, yeah. etc. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and all you well, it's also really hard to not do it. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and so, so once once you make the pro protein flexible, you've got a lot more. Like you've got a carbonyl group. If it's point, if an rigid protein is pointed a certain direction, yeah. you're always going to get a water structure there. But if this carbonyl can move as a result of dynamics, that structured water will disappear. So yeah. with a single structure, you might see this as a structured water. But mm. when you allow flexibility in the protein, yeah. right, and one way to do it is dance dynamics. The other yeah. way would be to infinite number of protein configurations yeah, yeah, and yeah. rhythm on each separate yeah. one. The so yeah. What's actually worse, I, I, I like your carbonyl example, but what's worse is something like a valine or an isoleucine. We've got this hydrophobic group and it's, let's say we take a, a, a valine and it's stuck in one position in space. Well, the water will form cages around that in a very particular way mm -hmm. and it will pack around that and you have a packing effect. So water will organize around a hydrophobic group. <laughs> Whereas when we run it and that valine is spinning like a propeller, mm -hmm. it's swept out the whole area. Yeah, yeah. There's no water structure around it at all. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very cool. And so we, we look at, we, we do computations where we have a frozen protein and you see all these little features and you're like, what the hell is going on? And it's all artifacts. And it's mostly coming from lipophilic parts of the protein that are rigid. Interesting. Yeah. Right? So you, you will have carbonyls and alcohols mm. and, 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 and things like that, that order waters up that in reality they don't because they're dynamic. But the worst offenders are the lipophilic regions, which are most amino acids. Mm -hmm. And you get tons of artifacts from those. Mm -hmm. And when you do the average structure, they're all gone. Makes total sense. Mm -hmm. And so so we see that immediately. And so when we look at methodology with where the protein is not moving and they're solving for solvent structures, it's like, how do you separate the real features from these artifacts that are induced because yeah. your protein's at zero Kelvin and stuck? Did you ever um, square the circle and go back to where you started from and start applying the QM work to the water clusters? I had a, of a, a, a professor who did this as yeah. an undergraduate. This is pretty cool. So one of the things that I did was looking at um, the proton transfer rates. Mm. And so if you take a cluster of water molecules and and using mm you can get some orientation then you can do qm to minimize that down and then you can take a proton and you can bring it into that cluster in in the qm side mm -hmm. and watch it disappear mm -hmm. disappear in what way 
you can't identify which one is the proton anymore oh. in the QM sense. So I can, I can take a proton into a cluster of like, I, I did 50 mm-hmm. or 60 water molecules. This was a fairly heavy QM calculation mm-hmm. and bring a proton in and optimize it. And it literally disappears. And you're looking, if you look at the OH bond lengths, you're like, which one is the I proton? I see what you're having. The, the, the molecule completely distorts into this quantum object that's, yeah. that's no longer the ball and stick H2O as you started with. Right. And so you're looking mm-hmm. at this going, okay. And, and then you, if you go through, and, and there's a lot of distances that you have to look at, mm-hmm. you go, okay, this cluster of, of oxygen and hydrogens is a little different than the rest of them. So something's going on there. Then what you do is you go to the other side of the cluster and you take a proton and you slowly (laughs) move its hydrogen out. It immediately becomes the proton. Hmm. Ah, interesting. And so what you can, so what we did on the QM side was you take this cluster, you bring a proton in and you can pop the proton off the other end. And we actually calculated the barrier for that. It's next to nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's the best part. When we look at our time average structures of water in around proteins, the water forms chains that are like like um, bucket brigades. Mm-hmm. These are hydrogen bonded mm-hmm. waters and they tend to form over lipophilic regions of protein surface. Mm-hmm. And if you put a proton in one end of this chain, <laughs> you can pop it up the other end with basically awesome. no barrier. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to show in a number of proteins that these are functional. You have a network of waters on the surface and you have a channel that goes into the catalytic site where you have to do a proton transfer. Yeah. Well, where does that proton come from? Well, it just pops bulk. in off of bulk yeah, water yeah, yeah. and then pops back out with no barrier. How long do these chains get? They will span the entire protein. We, we have chains that go from one side of the protein to the other. I do find this fascinating because we, we do molecular mechanics and even at quantum mechanics with certain approximations. But I think life takes advantage of all these very strange effects. Proton transfer, which is not in our dynamics. Yeah. These water chains you're talking about, we've got a proton, uh, protein structure. There's a hydrophobic channel. Two distant residues can communicate by hydrogen. Oh, no, we, no, we actually see that. We yeah. actually, you'll, you'll have a lysine and, 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 a, and a, a spartic acid yeah. on the protein surface, and you will have a ring of water around yeah. one and a channel that goes all the way down and a ring of water around the other. You can 20 angstroms, 30 angstroms between these two. And there's structure between them. And there's structure between them. And you can drop a protein in one end and take it off the other end. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, life is incredible. It's got to be taken advantage of yeah. all these different subtleties. So yeah. one thing that we did do, and, and this is work that I did with uh, on, um, Andre Golosov, um, who's a brilliant scientist. And we were looking at uh, protein-protein complexes, um, molecular glues and degraders and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at two proteins coming together. And what we found was when the two proteins come together, these networks of waters actually come together first. <laughs> And so we haven't done anything with this, but mm. when, when two proteins come together, I don't think that it's some random collision. We, I don't think modeling protein-protein collisions as just hard spheres mm. is correct. As they approach, they actually fall into a potential well, and they're going to orient based on these water networks which are sitting on the surface. Which makes sense. You've got these extended electrostatics coming out from the protein, which gives you sort of biased orientations of mm-hmm. these waters. And these waters are pointed this way, and one protein pointed this way, and the well, others. The, the and water they, chains are actually in the lipophilic regions. Of, for of sure, that's what I, I yeah. kind of understood. But well, let's say I have two proteins coming together in solution, right? Yeah. Around around each protein, it's not uh, random water. It's actually no. it's actually highly structured, structured right. based on long range electrostatics. Yeah, yeah. And when these two things come together, I've got you know well, negative f- force lines coming out of protein yeah, one, positive force it's lines coming out of protein field. two. Yeah. yeah. That'll be interesting to see to what extent the long range electrostatics start to orient them before they dance together. They're coming yeah. together and they start to orient perhaps. My head's sore now. This has been mind breaking. So Tom Kurtzman has been doing some really fundamental work on, on exactly this, where he's looking at just two plates mm-hmm. and changing the distance between them and looking at the water structuring in between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's done, he's published some really cool stuff on this. And the, just just that little tiny differences, and you can go from completely ordered water to disordered water yeah. and back and forth. And, and, and it's quantized. Yes. So this is macroscopic quantization. Hmm. where we were dealing with hundreds of molecules, hmm. but it is absolutely quantized with discrete radii. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really cool stuff. That's bonkers. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's the next, 
the next level for AI, right? Machine learning is going to figure all that stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, it's been a great conversation. I think we probably got to wrap it up now. Um, Richard Dean Richard Anderson, Anderson is still alive. Yeah. Actually, and that's, he looks much better as a young man. I'm pretty sure that's Sting in the bottom right-hand corner there. Yeah, yeah, it does look like Sting, doesn't it? Um, so is he, is, did you book him? Is he next? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't we, think it'd be as interesting we'll a probably, conversation. We'll to probably have to so. pay him. <laughs> All right. Look, thanks, Dan. That was Anytime. a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Again, a great interview. And we'll have you back someday, perhaps. Yeah, for sure. Um, good luck with the company. Things are going well. Excited yep. to see what's going to happen with that. Thank you all for listening. This episode of Under the Surface. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye for now. This episode is dedicated to the memory of George Thompson. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Under the Surface. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms so you don't miss an upcoming episode. Enjoying our podcast? Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have topics or speaker suggestions for future episodes? Send an email to podcast at chemcomp.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at chemcomp.com. Until then, keep exploring, keep learning, and keep loving the science. Signing off.